On a late May afternoon in 1999, the bar of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. was filled with people. That was good for John Ronson. He didn't want to draw any attention to himself. The journalist was there investigating a vague organization known only as Bilderberg. Allegedly, it was a power-hungry cabal of elites running the world. Ronson was there to meet with a man named Big Jim Tucker, another journalist who'd spent the last 30 years pursuing the truth about Bilderberg. Tucker was easy to find. He was a tall, elderly gentleman in a wrinkled suit and fedora. The two shook hands, but before they began talking, Tucker finished a phone call. Ronson overheard him leave a cryptic message, saying, quote, Mother, your dutiful son is playing kick the can on Pennsylvania Avenue, Tuesday morning, 10.30 a.m. Thank you. Tucker hung up and lit a cigarette. He told Ronson he believed Bilderberg was out to get him. He left that message for a friend every day. It was a code to say he was still okay. According to Tucker, there was a lot more to Bilderberg than most knew. They'd formed in the 1950s and met every year since. They said they were gathering to solve world issues, but Tucker suspected something more sinister was at play. He believed Bilderberg was actually orchestrating wars, deposing world leaders, and plotting a new world order. Supposedly, they always tried to keep the location of their meetings a secret. But this year was different. Tucker had discovered their venue ahead of time. They were due to meet in Portugal the following week, and he asked Ronson if he wanted to come along. Together, they'd break in and unearth Bilderberg's agenda once and for all. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Bilderberg Group, an annual meeting of 150 of the world's top royalty, leaders, and Fortune 500 CEOs. Each year, they convene at a different luxury hotel around the world. Allegedly, they discuss issues like inequality, the future of the workforce, and climate change. All members are sworn to secrecy, meeting minutes are private, and no outsiders are allowed. This media blackout has caused bipartisan concern. The left fears a corporatocracy, and the right fears a one-world government. Today, we'll cover Bilderberg's history, the sparse information that is available from meetings, and what happened when a few journalists tried to get a peek behind the scenes. In our next episode, we'll dive into three conspiracy theories surrounding Bilderberg. We'll examine if their funding actually comes from the CIA, if they're leveraging the devastation of COVID-19 to their advantage, or if they really are trying to establish some new world order. 
We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Bilderberg may just be one of the most secretive groups on the planet, so it's fitting that the group was founded by an equally enigmatic figure, a man named Josef Redinger. Redinger was born and raised in Krakow, Poland in 1888. His father was the legal advisor to a wealthy count named Władysław Zamoyski, who had estates throughout Poland. When Redinger's father died, Zamoyski became the boy's benefactor and paid for his education. With so much financial support, Redinger's future should have looked bright. But Poland's future was grim. At the time, the country was divided up and ruled by three other nations. Over the course of 100 years, Germany, Austria, and the Russian Empire had steadily taken more territory. Poland's weak government wasn't able to stop their encroachment. These outside governments largely oppressed Redinger's countrymen. They forced the Polish people into military services and confiscated their lands. Redinger and his brothers dreamed of the day Poland would regain its independence. They grew up on stories about the November Uprising, an unsuccessful rebellion against the Russians in 1830. Tales like these instilled a deep sense of patriotism within Redinger from a young age. Many of his countrymen shared this sentiment, but were losing the will to fight back. Redinger realized it might be best for him to leave Poland altogether. Perhaps he could gain international support and win Poland's independence from the outside. In 1906, the 18-year-old Redinger set about this path by way of a degree in literature. He loved writing and spoke five languages. With Zamoyski's financial support, Redinger attended the Sorbonne in France. His prodigious intellect and connection to Zamoyski paved the way for him to meet some of Paris's cultural elite. 
During one of these gatherings, he supposedly gave a draft of his first book to Nobel Prize-winning author André Gide. Unfortunately, Gide wasn't a fan of the book. He told Redinger that he'd never become a successful writer. Redinger, in turn, was understandably crushed. Somehow, though, the feedback led to a turning point in his life, one that pushed him not into literature, but politics. In 1911, Redinger moved to London and became a representative for a certain nationalistic Polish organization. The organization was dedicated to gaining international support for Polish independence, exactly what Redinger had set out to do. They hoped to form a coalition of countries that could apply pressure to any enemies of Polish independence. But in 1914, World War I broke out, putting a pause on Redinger's work. Suddenly, Polish independence seemed less pressing than defeating Germany. Redinger did his part to try and end the war early. He joined a secret coalition of British and French officials. Together, they approached the Emperor of Austria, Charles I. At the time, Austria-Hungary was allied with Germany, which meant both were pitted against England. But the emperor was ready to nullify his pact with the Germans. The war was too brutal for his country. While the idea of switching sides was appealing, especially with the help of Redinger's group, the emperor and his wife were scared. They likely feared Germany would retaliate if they broke their alliance, so the plan fell apart. The war dragged on for almost another two years. Redinger's coalition would have remained a secret, but a French official revealed their clandestine meetings. By the end of World War I, Redinger was no longer welcome in Europe. Redinger's efforts to form a secret alliance had failed, and officials in Britain and France weren't sure if they could trust him. So he was essentially expelled from Europe, at which point he fled to Mexico. Fortunately, Poland regained its independence after World War I, once Germany and Austria were forced to give up the land and Poland's third ruler, the Russian Empire, had collapsed. But that didn't mean Poland trusted Redinger to return. He was forced to stay in Mexico for much of the next 20 years. While in exile, Redinger shifted his focus to local politics. In Mexico, he helped politicians win office, organized the country's first trade union, and even helped the government nationalize its oil industry. But his political trajectory was again interrupted in 1939, when the Nazis took over Poland, igniting World War II. Poland's leader fled to Romania, while other officials fled to Britain. There, they established a government in exile and elected a man named Władysław Sikorski as their prime minister. The government didn't have much power, but it did help supply the Polish underground army whenever possible. Prime Minister Sikorski had met Redinger during World War I and remembered how much of an asset he could be. Thanks to his fluency, strong network, and political savvy, Redinger was called back to London and made an influential member of Sikorski's retinue. To keep Poland free once and for all, they wanted to create a league of small European countries after the war, like a miniature United Nations. Collectively, the Union could defend its freedom from other countries that were reminiscent of Nazi Germany. 
1941, Redinger organized a meeting with officials from a variety of countries, including Belgium, Greece, and Romania. With their support, the group began to convene regularly and discuss plans for how to increase their cooperation post-war. But in 1945, Redinger's progress was cut short by way of the Yalta Conference. There, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin met to decide which countries they'd help rebuild after the war. Britain and the U.S. were responsible for nations in Western Europe, while Russia was responsible for the Eastern countries like Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. The news devastated the 57-year-old Redinger. Poland would come under Soviet rule again. It also meant that if the Soviets went to war, Poland might be forced to join them. Those fears were quickly validated. Soon after World War II ended, the Cold War began. Western democracy fought against the Eastern communist nations for global supremacy. Many worried that World War III could begin at any moment. To combat this growing threat, Redinger helped create the European League for Economic Cooperation in 1946. Unlike the Committee of Small Nations he'd formed during World War II, this federation was comprised of global power players like England and France. They met several times in Paris, London, and Brussels, working to organize relief efforts and help each other recover after the devastation of World War II. The new group was some small relief for Redinger, but he knew more needed to be done to strengthen the ties amongst European countries. The USSR was powerful and relentless. Europe would have to be strong, and it would need to combine forces abroad, specifically with America, if they wanted to prevent the Soviets from taking over the world. In 1952, Redinger looked for people to help him foster this international collaboration. One person in particular stood out, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Leaders all over Europe and the U.S. respected him, especially for his brave resistance to the Nazis during World War II. With Bernhard at his side, other countries would surely take an interest in Redinger's new committee. Redinger met with Bernhard in 1952 and said he was planning an off-the-record discussion group amongst influential world leaders. He hinted they were working to understand the complex forces Western countries were facing in the wake of World War II. The prince enthusiastically agreed to join. Redinger spent the next year reaching out to his connections, including President Eisenhower, the director of the CIA, Bedell Smith, and the former prime minister of Belgium, Paul von Zeeland. By the end of 1953, the meeting was a go. The most elite international figures would converge at Hotel de Bilderberg in the Netherlands on May 29, 1954. Little did they know, they were launching one of the most controversial gatherings in modern history. Coming up, Bilderberg morphs into an entirely different gathering. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest humans. 
Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. Deep into a career of fighting for Polish independence, by 1946, Josef Redinger had created several committees to promote European unity. He hoped that doing so would empower Europe to resist communist influence. His dreams became a reality on May 29, 1954, when dozens of men from the United States and Western Europe arrived at the Bilderberg Hotel in the Netherlands. The group was chock full of prominent leaders, from politicians to industrialists and trade unionists to scholars and writers. At first, the atmosphere was tense. After all, no one knew what to expect. However, Prince Bernhard took the stage and welcomed them. He gave the group one guideline. Everyone was to observe the Chatham House rule. According to this rule, participants were allowed to share information from the discussion with the outside world, but they couldn't reveal who said it. Redinger believed that protecting the person's identity encouraged them to share their honest thoughts throughout the meeting. The assurance of confidentiality eased tensions. Bernhard gave them their first topic, and the conversations took off. The exact discussion subjects were kept secret, but we do know that most speakers only had five minutes to make their point. The quick, concise responses fostered a lively debate. One of the participants, Italian diplomat Pietro Quaroni, said that Redinger acted as the facilitator, making sure someone was always talking. To Quaroni, Redinger reminded him of an engineer fiddling with the dials on a control panel. While the first summit didn't conclude with a plan to win the Cold War or solve world hunger, they did agree it should be an annual event. The discussions gave them greater insight about the state of international affairs. They continued meeting in secret for three more years. 
But in 1957, an investigative journalist named Westbrook Pegler caught wind of Bilderberg's activities. Pegler suspected Redinger was doing more than just managing discussions on diplomacy and philanthropy. His coverage set the stage for fears that the group was plotting to control the world. Pegler had cut his teeth writing for the Chicago Tribune. He'd even won a Pulitzer Prize for exposing racketeers and labor unions. More than anyone, he knew how powerful groups could cause damage if they weren't held accountable. And Bilderberg was of growing concern. Pegler first learned about the group from one of his readers, who we'll call Shannon. She'd been traveling to Florida when she stopped at a hotel in St. Simons Island, Georgia. It was a quiet town with only a few thousand residents. She expected the hotel to be full. To her surprise, it was only staffed by a skeleton crew. When Shannon asked about the lull, one of the clerks said the hotel had hosted over 100 high-profile individuals a few days before. They'd even used the FBI and Secret Service for security. Clearly, this type of gathering intrigued Pegler. He soon found out that a fellow journalist named Ralph McGill had attended the meeting. But apparently McGill had been sworn to secrecy and he had no intention of reporting on the group. He didn't think it was worth looking into. This shocked Pegler. A secret meeting of power brokers was definitely worth a second look. Pegler dug deeper, and his suspicions deepened when he discovered that Arthur Hayes Salzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, had also attended Bilderberg. But like McGill, Salzberger hadn't been present as a reporter. He'd gone to participate, and the journalist swore to keep it all a secret. Pegler still had no idea what was actually discussed at the meeting. His article concluded that whatever this meeting was, it consisted of a strange assortment of arbiters who were clearly taking care to remain secret. Pegler's article didn't do much damage. Sure, he'd uncovered a secret meeting, but he hadn't found anything scandalous. After him, there were seemingly too few journalists willing to take on the mantle of the case. Over time, Bilderberg all but faded from the public eye. The group narrowly avoided media scrutiny, but soon faced more bad news. In 1960, Redinger died of lung cancer, which came as a devastating blow. Still, his legacy as founder lived on without him. Bilderberg continued to meet without interruption for 15 more years. That is, until Jim Tucker took up the hunt. Tucker began his career as a sports journalist, but one of his colleagues was the editor of a fringe newspaper called The Spotlight, which had an extensive record of promoting anti-Semitic materials. At the time, The Spotlight was the only paper apparently interested in Bilderberg. Once Tucker heard about it, he hopped on the bandwagon and grew obsessed. He joined The Spotlight in the 1970s just to help follow the story. The more Tucker investigated, the more he feared that Bilderberg had drifted from its original cause. It no longer seemed like an altruistic gathering to solve world issues. Rather, Tucker was convinced they'd become a corrupt networking event for the elite. Without any indication of what was discussed, Tucker felt that Bilderberg was being used as a chance to deal with unsavory business before it hit the public narrative. 
The meeting seemed prime time for a politician to approach a media mogul and convince them not to run a scandalous story or for a CEO of an arms company to ask a government official for exclusive contracts. It was all hypothetical, and Tucker wasn't able to find much evidence that this was the case. But his tenacious coverage did create some movement. Apparently aware that there was a growing desire for transparency, Bilderberg stepped closer towards the spotlight. Ahead of time, they began releasing what Tucker described as an incomplete list of their attendees. And Bilderberg held its first press conference in 1975. There, they asserted that all participants took part as private citizens, not as elected officials or CEOs. According to them, this wasn't a matter of morality since they weren't passing binding legislation. But Tucker was unsatisfied. It felt like a facade of transparency. He continued covering their meetings from the mid-1970s through the 1990s, hoping to discover their true intent. By this point, numerous other journalists were aware of Bilderberg, but Tucker was the only one seriously investigating. It's possible this was because the owners of some major media publications were also Bilderberg members. One of those confirmed members was Rupert Murdoch, who today, through his company News Corp, controls a number of media organizations, including Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and HarperCollins Publishers. We can't say for certain that journalists were advised not to report on the subject, but knowing the stakes, it seems likely. Doing so would anger their employers and put their careers in jeopardy. Still, in 1999, a British journalist named John Ronson had embarked on his own investigation. Ronson was a politically moderate reporter who often covered extremist groups. During his interviews with these organizations and their members, He'd heard several of them mention Bilderberg. This included Omar Bakri Mohammed. Mohammed was a radicalized Muslim living in England who had connections to terrorist cells in the Middle East. He was also a staunch supporter of Osama bin Laden. Mohammed never claimed that Bilderberg had connections to terrorism, but he did believe that Bilderberg was conspiring to take over the world. When Ronson asked for evidence, one of Mohammed's followers pointed to President Jimmy Carter. Carter had apparently attended a Bilderberg meeting around 1973. At the time, he was just the governor of Georgia. But in 1977, he was elected president. Mohammed and his followers believed this was all thanks to Bilderberg. Unfortunately, he didn't offer Ronson much more explanation than that. Instead, Ronson's contacts told him to reach out to Jim Tucker if he wanted to learn more. Ronson followed their hint and met with Tucker in May 1999. During their conversation, Tucker confirmed that Bilderberg was meeting at the Caesar Park Hotel in Sintra, Portugal, that June. This presented a rare opportunity for Tucker. Bilderberg had made a habit of releasing the location, but only a day before their meeting. With this much lead time, Tucker could make travel arrangements and get to the resort ahead of time. Once there, he'd find a way to break in and spy on Bilderberg's proceedings. Ronson and Tucker landed in Portugal on Monday, May 31st, 1999, three days before the meeting. 
they checked into their hotel near Sintra before driving to the Caesar Park Hotel, nestled in the mountains. The pair spent the rest of the day casing the venue, looking for a way to break in. But their reconnaissance mission was cut short. The hotel manager spotted the duo and kicked them off the property. As Tucker and Ronson left, they noticed several police cars arriving. They weren't there for the trespassers. It appeared they were there as security, presumably preparing for the Bilderberg meeting. Undeterred by the police presence, Ronson and Tucker returned to the Caesar Park Hotel the following day. Only this time, the place looked completely abandoned. Seeing only the staff around the property, the duo feared this might be some sort of trap. They got in their car and drove down the mountain road. The rearview mirror, though, indicated that a green car was following closely behind, tracking them. After three hours of being tailed, Ronson pulled the car over. The green car parked right in front of them. Then, a man in a suit and sunglasses got out, but didn't approach them. He just stood and stared, as if his presence was a threat enough. Panicked, Ronson called the British Embassy in Portugal. He explained the situation to a woman named Sandra, who asked Ronson if he had Bilderberg's permission to be in Portugal. He didn't. He claimed he was just a journalist. Perhaps the embassy could contact Bilderberg and clear things up. Sandra's reply was striking. She said, quote, Listen, Bilderberg is much bigger than we are. We're very small. We're just a little embassy. They're way out of our league. Still, she promised to look into the matter and report back. In the meantime, Tucker and Ronson sped back to the hotel. The green car followed them into the parking lot. Tucker went to his room and Ronson waited by the pool until they figured out what to do next. When Ronson's phone rang next, it was Sandra. She'd called a Bilderberg representative at the Caesar Park Hotel. They told her that, as far as they knew, no one was following Ronson. While Sandra admitted this was likely a lie, she told him not to worry, that it was likely just an intimidation tactic. She added, quote, The dangerous ones would be those you didn't know were following you. Ronson didn't find this reassuring. But as scared as he was, he wasn't going to let Bilderberg chase him away. He'd come too far to give up the chase now. Coming up, Bilderberg's scope of power becomes clear. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. 
For 21 years, the Bilderberg Group met without attracting any major media attention. But in 1975, reporter Jim Tucker tried to discover whether the meetings themselves were cause for concern. Were they just discussing world events, or were the members conducting unethical business deals? He partnered with fellow journalist John Ronson to help pull back the curtain. The moment of truth came on June 3rd, 1999. Despite their harrowing experience of being followed days before, Ronson and Tucker returned to the Caesar Park Hotel in Sintra, Portugal. They waited outside the gate in the hot afternoon sun. Once Tucker and Ronson could confirm that members were still planning to meet, they'd stage their break-in. It was a long wait, but around 4 p.m., a town car arrived and pulled into the gate. Inside that car was David Rockefeller, the billionaire grandson of John D. Rockefeller. Next, a former CEO of the carmaker Fiat, Umberto Agnelli, drove up. He was followed by former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. British politician Peter Mandelson also made an appearance. Trailed by a resignation scandal from six months prior, Mandelson was known as the Prince of Darkness. Seeing Mandelson concerned Ronson, he knew the man had no integrity. He'd left office as a result of his shady financial dealings, and yet he'd been invited to one of the world's most influential meetings. Ronson realized that maybe Tucker was right all along. Perhaps Mandelson and the others were using Bilderberg to make underhanded deals. The journalists spent the evening watching other Bilderberg members arrive. The caravan included executives from massive pharmaceutical corporations, big tobacco, and banking companies. With this many shadowy players, the journalists were convinced they were conducting backroom deals. Problem was, Ronson couldn't prove it, and they were powerless to stop it unless they found something incriminating. Once all of the Bilderberg members had arrived, Ronson was finally ready to attempt to break in. But Tucker unexpectedly backed out, claiming a local who'd previously offered his help was no longer available. Without Tucker, there was no way to pull it off. The two put the kibosh on the plan and decided to part ways. Ronson soon left Portugal, but leaving Portugal didn't mean he was through with investigating. Ronson spent the rest of 1999 and 2000 reaching out to other Bilderberg members, including David Rockefeller and the disgraced politician Peter Mandelson. Of the hundreds of people he contacted, only Rockefeller's press office responded, and they weren't very forthcoming. They told Ronson that Rockefeller was sick of being labeled as a covert conspirator and assured Ronson nothing nefarious was going on. Then they abruptly ended the conversation. It wasn't until 2001 that Ronson finally heard from a Bilderberg member willing to offer valuable insight. Dennis Healy, Britain's former Minister of Defense turned Finance Minister, not only returned Ronson's call, but agreed to meet. When Ronson asked why, Healy responded, quote, because you asked me. When Ronson eventually made the trip to Healy's house, the Bilderberg member revealed plenty of new information about the group. He explained that the steering committee consisted of two members from each of the countries in attendance. 
He said they got their money from Bilderberg-friendly corporations like Fiat, Heinz, and Nokia. During the conference, Bilderberg members met twice in the morning and twice at night. Healy even shared the group's seating chart. But after explaining their schedule and logistics, the conversation took a turn. Healy appeared more guarded as he vigorously denied that Bilderberg secretly ruled the world. Somehow, though, his comments indicated the sessions could influence international events. This seemed to be in line with information Ronson uncovered from a different unnamed source, which claimed that certain actions during the Falkland Islands War of 1982 were a result of Bilderberg intervention. It was a brief but bitter conflict between Argentina and Great Britain over the Falklands, a series of small islands off the coast of Argentina. Britain had claimed sovereignty over the islands after seizing them in 1833, while Argentina believed it was time for Britain to give up the territory they had taken by force. When Britain refused, Argentina invaded the islands. In response, Britain asked other nations to place sanctions on Argentina. The British government wanted them to stop importing Argentinian products, halt all military sales to the country, and freeze the country's financial assets in international banks. Britain hoped the sanctions would destroy their enemy's economy. If they weren't generating money, they couldn't pay for a war. However, only a few nations listened. Meanwhile, many powerful European countries were apprehensive about the sanctions, since they had economic interests in Argentina. As the war over the Falklands raged on, Bilderberg convened on May 14, 1982. Britain's Secretary of State David Owen was reportedly in attendance. Influential leaders from Italy, France, and West Germany were also present. Owen used this as a chance to win their support and made an impassioned speech in favor of these sanctions. Apparently, Owen's speech changed a lot of minds. After Bilderberg, more countries were willing to impose those sanctions. It wasn't far-fetched to believe this was a direct result of the meeting. Argentina surrendered a month later. Ronson was floored. According to this story, not only did Bilderberg all but change the course of a global conflict, they did so through exclusive channels. Records indicate that no one from Argentina had been invited to the meeting. So while the members discussed the fate of the country, they didn't have a representative or advocate for their interests. When Ronson interviewed Healy, he asked what Bilderberg's end goal was. Healy's reply was metered. He dismissed rumors of one world government as an exaggeration, though he agreed they weren't totally baseless. To him, quote, those of us in Bilderberg felt we couldn't go on forever fighting one another. We felt that a single community throughout the world would be a good thing. It was likely yet another moment that left Ronson stupefied. The interview revealed that Bilderberg wasn't just ultra-powerful, it was dangerous. Bilderberg didn't possess the ability to pass laws, but they could clearly band together to make entire nations bend to their will. Today, thousands of people know about Bilderberg, largely thanks to Ronson's credibility as a journalist. But the context of their discussions still remains a mystery. 
Every year, reporters show up at the venues but are barred from taking pictures by the police. In 2019, most journalists could only watch from afar as world leaders arrived for the conference in Montra, Switzerland. Guests included former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and the former director of the CIA, David Petraeus. The roster also included experts in artificial intelligence, military officials, and board members from giant tech companies. Allegedly, discussion topics included global events like Brexit, the ethics of artificial intelligence, and the future of capitalism. But some believe members are preparing for something far more sinister. Next time, we'll explore three theories surrounding the Bilderberg Group, like conspiracy theory number one, that Bilderberg was actually formed and funded by the CIA. Or conspiracy theory number two, that Bilderberg has accomplished what other secret societies have only dreamed of, a viable plan for a new world order. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, that Bilderberg orchestrated something known as the Great Reset. After markets plummeted during the COVID-19 pandemic, Bilderberg saw a chance to rebuild the world and cement their control over every aspect of society. Given all the secrecy, it's hard not to theorize about what's going on behind Bilderberg's doors. Regardless of their plausibility, one thing remains constant. Bilderberg might not be fixing, but rather plotting the very challenges that face the world today. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time for part two on conspiracy theories surrounding Bilderberg. For more information on the topic, we found them, Adventures with Extremists by John Ronson, helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.